0: Thank you, brother. Make sure you take some time during the meal to get to know these guys. I just preached at a congregation a couple of weeks ago, and it was not a vocal congregation like you guys, where people amen and stuff. So, uh, and it was very weird. So, if things get really quiet and I get boring, can you just blow that and wake people up? Yeah, would you mind? Yeah.
1: Thank you. Just I'll
0: blow that and I'll shout amen. All right. Thank you. All right. You can even uh, give a Baruch Hashem. A thing. <laughs> Thank you. All right. If you could open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue in our study. All right. Um, after the service, please, like we said, stick around for the meal We're going to need help to bring out the tables and to move the chairs around. So please uh, give us a hand with that if you are able to. Um, So like I said, turn to Acts chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat backs. We also uh, are going to have it projected up behind us so you can follow along that way. This passage that we're going to be looking at this week is one of the most well-known, often memorized, and most beloved passages in the history of the church. And that's saying a lot. Passages that are so well-known can be a challenge to teach because people that have been Christians for a long time, they come to the table feeling like they know it. Already, and that leads some pastors to believe that they have to try to be cute in their presentation of it. Well, thankfully, I'm not cute, and neither of those are helpful attitudes. So, what I'm going to ask is since this is such a well known passage, let's make a deal. You guys do your best to remain humble and teachable, even if this is the 9 millionth time you've heard this passage taught on, and I will do my best to not try to get cutesy with it and to just straightforward teach the simple verity of the Word of God. And when I say that this is a well-known passage, what I really mean is it begins with a very well-known verse, Acts 2.42 States And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And I've heard that verse referred to as the recipe for how to do church, a description of the life of the early church, the way the early church did church, what to look for in a solid church and the breakdown of what the mission of the church is supposed to look like. And there's a lot of truth in those statements that I just made. Those things are critical. I'm not going to say that they're not. Without them, you do not have a solid church. I would even go so far as to say without them, you do not have a biblical church. But even though those four pieces are critical, those four pieces alone do not constitute a church is going to be the argument that I'm going to make this morning. As great as Acts 2.42 is, when we take it in isolation, it could be missing pretty important pieces. First of all, all that was part of the greater context that makes the verse really pop and come alive. Secondly, I've attended services where somebody is teaching from the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowshipping, and it's all being done supposedly in the name of Jesus, but the name of Jesus is barely even mentioned and critical things like the grace of God are left out of the equation entirely And third, the verse tells us a lot of wonderful things about how to do church inside the four walls of the church, but it says nothing about the church being a missionary people that is supposed to take the message of the gospel outside of the four walls of the church to people who are literally dying without the hope of a Savior. So when you look at the passage and its context, the passage we looked at at the last two weeks where it was all about the pure gospel of Jesus and then the verses directly following 2.42 are all about the church being empowered by the four elements you see in 2.42 and then going on mission in their community to share and live out the entirety of of the life changing, life giving power of the gospel of Jesus. And when you put that all together, you have something so much more powerful than trying to reduce the church down to one verse could ever lead you to. So I'm going to pray and we'll dig in. Jesus, I pray that as we look to your scriptures that you would illuminate your word to our hearts, that you would hide me behind your cross, that I would not get in the way of what it is that you want to do today, Lord. I I pray that your spirit would be working on the hearts of the people, Lord, that you would be empowering the preaching of your word. I pray for anybody here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray that many of us would grow closer. And as this passage talks about, that we would leave here with an awe of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 42 starts off with a word that's often skipped over, and um, hold on, I'm going to move my water, uh, can somebody grab this uh, chair for me real quick, because I don't have three hands yet, I've been praying for one, but the Lord keeps saying no, um, thank you, you are a third hand, Mr. Digger, I appreciate that, Um So, verse 42 starts off with a word that, as many times as I've heard this passage taught on, I've heard it skipped right over so you could start to get to the meaty stuff. And that's the word they. Who is the they that Luke is referring to when he says, And they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to. The prayers. That is why the context is so important. And why the little section divisions above paragraphs in our Bibles can often be very unhelpful. If it wasn't for the little section divisions, we would just read this passage as coming very naturally right out of the verses that preceded it, like we should, like you would read any letter or any book. But instead, this section is treated as if it's a new section and it's not a new section. The they that Luke is referring to is the combination of the 3,000 believers who were just baptized only days before, along with the 11 who had walked with Jesus for three years and a handful of ragtag other disciples who were in the other room at Pentecost and maybe a few other stragglers, but mostly this crowd consisted of the 3,000 people who had just been saved for a matter of a few days and something stood out to me as I thought about this crowd. We expect far too little of people who have just gotten saved. These are not seasoned Christians that we're talking about in this passage. Even the most mature believer in the room had only been walking with Jesus at most for three years. And we still refer to people who have been walking with Jesus for three years as new believers in most circles. Yet this group of ragtag believers, most of them only days old in their faith, were getting together to study the Scriptures, They're praying together, they're giving sacrificially, they're adept and fluent in sharing the gospel, and they're leading people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. I mean, honestly, that's not a rhetorical... Think about that for a minute. When do you ever hear people ask new believers to do any of that? ever. Yet that's taking place with these people knowing Jesus for a matter of just a couple of days. And what it showed me is that new believers are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. Because guess what? New believers are filled with the same Holy Spirit, that the most seasoned believer in this room is. And when I started to think about it a little bit more, I came to the conclusion that we ask far too little of mature Christians as well. Most mature Christians that I've met have the studying the scriptures part down. Most of them have the praying part down that's mentioned here. But how often are we calling them to live and to give sacrificially? Or to be so in the gospel that it cannot help but to pour out of their mouths and their very lives in conversation. I'm not talking about talking about church stuff and getting together and saying, my church does this and my church does that. I'm talking about the gospel being so fluent that you can't help but share the gospel? And are we really calling our mature Christians to be leading new believers to Christ? I once heard D. James Kennedy say that most pastors do not know how to share the gospel with somebody on a one-on-one basis, so why are we so surprised when they preach so weakly about it from the pulpit if they're not even doing it themselves. If our mature believers are not demonstrating the things that we see the brand new believers in this passage in Acts 2 living out, why are we surprised that new believers are not living them out now? New Christians and seasoned vets, we are capable of so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And I, I have this tangent that I, I want to get into, but I, 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 I'm not going to. But I'm convinced that the failure to embrace this reality is why we have this rise in expensive conference ministries with celebrity preachers. Because if I'm not living out, with the Spirit has empowered me to live out in Christ, then why not just pay a bunch of money so I can go watch somebody else live out the things that I'm supposed to be living out in Christ? It's like when I was a kid, trading baseball cards. No matter what I ever did, I was never going to be Ken Griffey Jr., So I would collect a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball card. And it's like we go to these conferences and it's like I'll trade you an R.C. Sproul rookie card for your Piper because I don't actually believe that I have the same Holy Spirit that they have. So we'll make celebrities out of them. Folks, we don't need Christian celebrities when we see people right here who are saved a mere handful of days changing the very communities that they lived in by the power of the same gospel that we have been made stewards of today. So Let's break down what they did as they gathered. It says first that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's just another way of saying that they were committed to teaching from God's word. There was no what we know as a New Testament yet at this time. So they were either listening to the apostles teach from the Old Testament like you just saw Peter do in the sermon that he had just preached where he breaks down the book of Joel and the Psalms and 2 Samuel or they were actually seeing the New Testament being formed and unfold right in front of their very eyes. Think about how cool that must have been to just watching the New Testament unfold right in front of you. And I love that it uses the word devoted when it describes their attentiveness to the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did not casually listen to it. This wasn't the 50th podcast that they had thrown on today that they didn't intend on doing anything about. But hey, I listened to 50 of them, so that's got to get me some kind of credit in heaven. They didn't sit there and play on their iPhone while staring at the clock, wondering when the service was going to be over. They were devoted ...to the Word. They were eating it up. Being devoted means that they were actually... ...applying the Word of God... ...to their lives. And I want to stress that the Apostles' teaching... ...was entirely Christocentric in its nature. They were not preaching the law at these new Christians. They were preaching Jesus Christ... Our job as preachers is not to be able to create a room full of better rule keepers. Our job is to present Jesus as being as beautiful and magnificent as he truly is. And the rule keeping will come along. But our job is to preach Christ and him crucified. You meet a lot of rule keepers the longer you've been around the church that have zero affection for Jesus Christ. They just love rules. Yet I've never met somebody who is madly in love with Jesus Christ who is not growing to live and look more and more like Him day by day. And notice... That two different times in this text, it says that they had a sense of awe. The law does not leave you with awe. Let me hear you say that. The law does not leave you with awe. That's not what they were preaching to people. They were not preaching the law at them and expecting them to arrive at awe. Jesus brings us to a place of awe. So the apostles were teaching about Jesus in such a way that the people were developing this deep sense of awe because of who he is and what he has done. And that is Christian preaching, friends. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask your heart a question. Stop whatever you're thinking about that's not what I'm saying to you right now and take these and listen attentively for a second. When is the last time you've been in awe of Christ? And I don't ask that question presupposing that you haven't been because I don't think negative things about you. But it is my job to at least ask you to pause and consider that question. When is the last time that your heart was in awe of your Savior? I'm talking like such a deep awe that it had to be expressive because you were just overcome with this sense of awe of, wow, this Jesus is amazing. This Jesus is worth going all in for. This Jesus is worth everything. As I used to say to my youth group students all the time, Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he must be your everything. You got that? Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he must be your everything. And then it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. And again, just like... The teaching was unique and set apart because it was Christocentric in every way. The fellowship was unique because it was Christ-centered fellowship. It's not If it's not Christ-centered, it's not fellowship, folks. It's just hanging out. Anyone can hang out. You don't need a relationship with Jesus to hang out. But Luke was writing about something different. This fellowship had purpose to it, and the purpose was Jesus. I have a little mini rant here, but I love the missional church planting movement. I really do. I'm deeply entrenched in it. I Church planters, I work for a church planting organization, but I get nervous about what passes for fellowship in this new movement. Basically, I think that people like to do the same things that the world does, but if another Christian comes along, then we can label it fellowship. I have seen some stuff pass as fellowship. That any of my non Christian friends or neighbors would just call hanging out. And listen, there's nothing wrong with hanging out. It can actually be quite refreshing. There's sometimes where I call up a buddy and I'm like, man, can we just go eat some buffalo wings and talk about nothing? And you know if you're one of those people, man, I've got my buddies that I just call them my buffalo wing buddies. And I'm like, man, don't come to me and burden me with talking to me about an hour of your struggles with sexual immorality. That's not why I invited you out. I only want to eat fried chicken, and that's what we're doing here. It's hanging out. There's nothing wrong with hanging out. Just don't spiritualize it and try to call it fellowship when it's not. And one thing before moving on, for Christian fellowship to be Christian fellowship, it should be saturated with grace. And I mean so saturated with grace that it's unmistakable. Anyone can come up with events or hangouts or opportunities to gather, but without Grace. There's nothing uniquely Christian about that environment. Friends, let us never forget grace is what makes our gatherings unique. When somebody comes to a gathering of Christians and experiences grace, it's a powerful witness. Just look at the way that Jesus engaged people. There was always grace at the center of it. I have zero patience for graceless community. Zero. Zip. None. Like zero patience for programs that call themselves Grace to You, and they probably should be called graceless to you because of the way that they speak to people. Uh, Having this theology of grace But refusing to exhibit grace in your life is one of the biggest inconsistencies that Jesus preached against when he walked the earth. We should strive to be grace junkies. And man, that should show through in our fellowship. People should be able to come here and whether they end up coming to Jesus or not, they should be able to recognize there is grace in that place. That is the tagline I want people to know Redeemer Fellowship for. I want people to be able to come in and say, I came there and I experienced grace was there. Amen? Is that worth blowing a shofar over? (laughs) So next, it says that when they gathered, they broke bread. And some say that this is referring just to a meal, uh, but most interpret this as being about the Lord's Supper. I would say that there is substantial exegetical uh, evidence in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11 that this is making this out to be the Lord's Supper. And I think you have enough evidence if you look at Galatians or Corinthians or James amongst other places that when the early church gathered and shared a meal together, they shared the Lord's Supper together in a remembrance of Jesus and the cross. But this is just further evidence that whenever the church gathered, everything that they did was Christ-centered. Jesus was not a tack-on at the end of a service. Man, I can't stand it when I go and I'm visiting a church and you don't hear grace or the gospel or Jesus mentioned once. And then at the end, let's turn the lights down real low and talk real soft. Come, come to Jesus. Come, come. Why did you waste 40 minutes of my time without mentioning Jesus even once to me? And now you're going to try to trick me to coming to Christ with your licks and tricks and gimmicks. My God is so big that he does not need licks or tricks or gimmicks to call people to him. And how dare we refer to ourselves as Calvinists if we really believe that we have to trick people into coming to Jesus. Every element of their service was carefully crafted to reflect Jesus And everything they did as they gathered was to remember and celebrate Jesus. That's why I said you can't just stress the four elements of Acts 2.42. We have to stress that each of them pointed us to the person of Jesus. And then the last of the four, it says that when they gathered, they prayed. I am so excited to be getting into the book of Acts because you cannot get Around the priority that the early church placed on prayer. It literally leaps off of every page of Acts. Look, if you get nothing else, please get this. There is no program in your church that can ever be as powerful as prayer. You cannot programize the power of prayer out of our churches. As I look at these two churches coming together, spending time in Acts, it excites me because it shows me that we can make prayer be foundational in these early stages of a church. And just to give you a bit of a vision for what we have for deepening the prayer ministry of the church, and some of these are already happening, some of them have been happening, and some of them will be new We gather every day to pray as a staff, so if you ever need to fill out one of those prayer cards in your seat, we pray daily, and it would be our honor to pray for you. Each community group takes time each week to pray for each other and send out prayer requests. We announced last week that starting next month, we're going to have all of our community group leaders up here each week so that if you come here burdened with a prayer need, you can come and actually grab somebody and pray with them. In the fall we are looking to have our community groups meet just the first three weeks of the month so that the fourth week of the month, we can all gather together collectively for a concert of prayer. Sandy Lockwood has gotten a permit to start a prayer corner once a month at the Ocean County Mall. I mean, all of this does not mean that we've arrived. We can always go deeper, but it's a start. Corporate prayer is happening here as a church and i can't stress enough anyone can gather for those four things it wasn't those four things that made the church special and that's why so many sermons on acts 2 42 frustrate me so much the thing that made it special was the unashamed and unabashed focus on jesus Christ, the thing that made it special was the gospel, the thing that made it special is the passage does not end with Acts 2.42 and then as this was being lived out in community it says that awe came upon every soul, look at verse 43, it says "And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, what must that have looked like? When you read those words, do you ever stop and ask yourself questions like that? Like, think about it. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write about it. What must it have looked like that it was so tangible that all came on every soul. I would say based on the surrounding verses that it looked like a Jesus awakening was going on in this place. And what Luke was expressing is that the church was becoming enamored with the person and the work of Jesus so much so that they couldn't stop thinking about him or talking about him or singing about him or telling others about him because Jesus was oozing out of their lives. What would it look like now? What would it look like for somebody to walk into Redeemer Fellowship and say, Awe came upon every soul that was in that church. I think about, uh, when, when I'm thinking about being in awe of something, man, half of me thinks about just standing there so agape with my mouth just open that i'm unable to speak and half of me thinks about being so enamored that i can't shut up about the thing That's what awe means to me. I was trying to think of an analogy when we're talking about awe of Jesus, but all analogies fall short. Uh, The the best I can come up with is I I really love listening to skilled musicians, and I was thinking of the first time I observed Jaco Pastori play the bass. And in one sense, I sat there in stunned silence, like, wow. This man is able to do things with an instrument that I've never heard before. But in another sense, I was like, man, I've got to go take my new find and show him off to everybody and tell him you've got to hear this guy. What would it look like if we had a church that lived with that sense of awe of Jesus now? Where when we entered the sanctuary to worship him, we were just struck by majesty is in this place. If we were just enamored by the fact that the transcendent God was meeting with us in a way where he is both transcendent and imminent at the same time because of the work of Christ. And we couldn't help but speak of him because of our hearts being in such awe. And I sing this song, to Calvin when I rock him at night. And for those of you that don't know, I have a son named Calvin. I don't sing songs to John Calvin at night. Um, (laughs) Maybe sometimes I do. but uh, (laughs) There's this lyric in the song that I sing where it says, Jesus, Your name is like honey on my lips. Your spirit's like water to my soul. Or as the psalmist says, the deer pants for the water so my soul longs after you that's a little glimpse of what it means to have awe come upon an entire community and the next verses continue that in this communal sense of awe it talks about the togetherness of these new believers look at verses 44 through 46 I know you guys are hungry so give me six minutes and, and, and I'll I'll wrap up um it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and dist- and distributing the proceeds to all as all had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving food with gladness of hearts. So I love how verse 44 says that these new lovers of Jesus had all things. In common, That word in common is where we get the English word community from. It's literally a common unity that we're sharing together. So when you think of community, think of common unity. People love to talk about community. It is like the buzzword of 2015 Christianity. But look at these verses, man. And it's 2016, isn't it? I forgot what year it was for a second. 2015 was just so good I got stuck. But community is not an event that you show up at, folks. It's not a program at a church that you invite people to, folks. It's a heart posture towards your fellow man and it's costly but I don't mean costly in the sense where it takes away from you. Community is one of those beautiful paradoxes where it costs something, but the cost is so far outweighed by what you receive in Jesus. It's costly, but it's worth it. You know what's hilarious to me? is People love to debate this passage as if this is an early argument for socialism or Marxism. I'm not sharing anything political when I share this passage because guess what? Luke wasn't sharing anything political when he was sharing this passage. I would stake my life on the fact that Luke did not have Karl Marx in mind when he wrote Acts chapter 2. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations with somebody where they're like, the early Christians, they believed in the redistribution of wealth. So they held to some form of biblical communism. If you really think that that's where Luke is getting at, then you're missing the point. He's simply saying that they lived in such close proximity and community that they were not willing that any amongst them should go without or should starve while others thrived. We all want community. But for community to be community, it has to cost us something. You can't just show up and wave a magic wand and be like, bibbidi-bobbidi, community. It doesn't work like that. One thing Luke made very clear is that Christians were willing to live sacrificially because they loved Jesus, they loved one another, and they believed in the advancement of this new cause called the Gospel. And that was the reason that fueled it. And the reason that we can understand the sacrificial nature of community is not because of socialism or whatever you want to put on it. It's because Jesus came and sacrificed everything To be able to show a church what a sacrificial community was supposed to look like. I love how he addresses the fact that they gathered day by day twice here in this passage. You have to be careful about how you teach this or better said how you emphasize this. I understood this wrongly. I thought day by day meant that I was supposed to go to a church function every single night of the week. And as a culture, we can trend towards busyness. And as the church, we should be swimming against those cultural expectations. We are not to be marked by our busyness. We're to be marked by our intentionality. But the disqualifiers aside, I do think that people should have time in their lives for church to be a priority I have to admit that the cynical side of me laughed when I read that people gathered together day by day because I was thinking, day by day, it's hard enough to get people to show up for an hour and a half once a week on Sundays. Guys, life together in Christ-centered community should be the priority that every other priority in our life stems from. You can't claim that Christ is a priority but not prioritize Christian community. You can't. I know that we live in this individualistic society where people like to be able to claim I can do what I want. But you cannot claim that Christ is a priority if Christian community is not a priority. That's a fact. Show me someone in the Bible where Jesus was everything to them but community meant nothing. You won't find that person. That's a concept that comes from American individualism, not scripture. Jesus should be our daily priority. And lastly, as the church magnified Jesus, lived in gospel community, demonstrated gospel generosity, and demonstrated this foreign but beautiful thing called grace, something amazing happened. They became a church that lived on mission. Look at verse 47. It says they were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They just went and visited my buddy who planted a church down in Texas. And there was a church that was right in his same town. And they were giving away a free iPad to everybody that came and visited their church. So um, if you were hoping for one of those, you're going to be sorely disappointed. They didn't need to give away iPads to make this community attractive. The grace of God was that attractive. Jesus was that attractive. The reason I get so frustrated when Acts 2.42 is preached with no mention of mission is that the entire passage is literally bookended by mission. You have the Pentecost, which is all about mission. You have Peter's sermon after Pentecost, which was all about mission. You have 3,000 people getting baptized and brought into the church, which was all about mission. And then the church is bookended by God the awesome missionary adding to his church day by day those who are getting saved you can't have the elements of acts 242 without having a thread of mission that runs consistently through all of it acts 242 in and of itself is not church The church is not just about what happens inside the four walls. The church is a missionary training ground to equip us to go out and reach people who are not coming to these four walls. Because guess what? They don't care what program you run on what night you run it. They still ain't coming. It's our job to go incarnate the love of Jesus into their lives. Amen. So a couple of questions before we chow down. Worship in the early church was sacrificial, but something that stands out that is just so beautiful is that there was simplicity in it. Has life been complicated, or has there been a beautiful, God-ordained simplicity? Notice it didn't mention that when the church got together that it had to have 84 things that they had to have people keep track of. They had four! And that's hard enough! It's clear that there were awe infused in their worship. When's the last time you experienced biblical awe? Worship was not just simple and full of awe. There was a sacrificial element to it. Has there been sacrifice in your worship? Worship. You cannot have all four elements from Acts 2.42 if they're not centered on Christ, if they're merely ritual. Are you finding Christ to be the center of everything you do? Every song that we sing, every text that we look at, we are about to go partake of the Lord's Supper right now and we literally have an opportunity to savor our savior as we partake of this common meal in the same way they did in the early church let's pray jesus thank you so much for this beautiful beautiful text and i pray lord that we would not suspend awe, that we wouldn't say someday we will be in awe i pray that as we partake of these elements as we eat of the body and drink of your blood, that we would be in awe that we have a Savior to partake of at all. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name.